We're kind of going backwards. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. This will be the last sermon on spiritual warfare. Let me read the verse and then we'll pray. Ephesians 5, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you keep your promises and that you're with us. And we pray for those that aren't with us this morning, Lord, that are working or on vacation or not feeling well. Lord, we pray that you would encourage them, that they would know the height and the width, the depth, the breadth of your love, and that you would bring them back to us, Lord, in your perfect timing. And now we ask, Lord, that as we continue to worship you and seek your face, that you would bless your word and draw near to us, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I know of a woman not too long ago. I don't know her personally, but I know her, know of her. She was on an airplane, a small private airplane, and it crashed in the middle of the words. And it may have been Louisiana. And she professes Christ, and she said that that was an attack of Satan, that the crash was spiritual war. That Satan was after her. Is that true or is that false? Maybe it's true. (laughs) With the book of Job, right? God allowed Satan to do some things against Job. Perhaps it could be spiritual warfare. Perhaps. But I think sometimes, as we've said before, we can tend to make spiritual warfare something that it is not, or at least something that it is not normally. We can make spiritual warfare something very mystic and very fantastical, or we can turn everything into a spiritual war. A drunk driver hit me a few weeks ago. A drunk driver hit Ricky and Sarah's cars. Is that spiritual warfare? I think sometimes we can, in a sense, make some things too spiritual while we overlook what is really spiritual warfare. And I think what is really spiritual warfare is Ephesians 5.21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then right after that statement, you have this arena of relationships. Wives and husbands. You see that in verse 22, verse 25. Chapter 6, you have children and you have parents. And then basically, we would say today, you have verse 5 of chapter 6, you have employees and employers. Chapter 6, verse 9. It is in these differing relationships where truly you have spiritual warfare. 
It's not that those other things are never spiritual warfare, but the basic day-to-day spiritual war is fought in relationships. How do we respond and relate to one another? That's where the true spiritual war is fought. And as we look this morning at this one verse and finish this brief survey that we've had on spiritual warfare, I want to put it like this. Effective relationships requires the fear of Christ. Or you can say it, I think, even more precise. Effective relationships requires a Christ-driven priorities. By effective relationships, I mean eternal fruit. Relationships that will have eternal blessing. Relationships, at least from from your side, God is pleased with you. How can you have that kind of a relationship? Well, you have to have a Christ-driven priorities in your life. And that is spiritual warfare. Seeking to be driven by Christ's priorities is spiritual warfare. And, and I bring this up because chapter 6, verse 10 through 18 is the explicit section on spiritual warfare. Verse 10 starts with the word finally, that is coming to the, the matter at hand or summing up all things. Right before, however, this section on explicit spiritual warfare starts in 6.10. You have chapter 5.22 all the way to 6.9 on differing relationships. Right after Paul talks about all these different relationships we have, then he says, finally be strong in the Lord. It's in a sense, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Kids, obey your parents. Parents, don't exasperate your kids. Slaves, be obedient. Masters, be kind. Then verse 10 and following, be strong in the Lord then and put on the armor of God. Because in these different relationships that we all have, every one of us is either a child or a parent, a husband or a spouse, or the employee or an employer. In some way, we all fall into these different relational categories. And that itself, how we live and respond, is spiritual war. And the way that we need to fight is with Christ-driven priorities, and that will make our relationships God-pleasing and therefore effective eternally. So then, what are these priorities? What are these priorities that I'm talking about? Effective relationships require Christ-driven priorities. What are these priorities? Number one, first, this involves prioritizing others above yourself. Prioritizing others above Yourselves. You can see this quite clearly in 521 and being subject to one another. At least for me, this is hard to hear. To have an effective relationship with my wife and kids or with others, I need to prioritize them above me. I don't like how that sounds. For some reason, that can kind of grate against me. It's grating against my 
pride. But it's clearly there in verse 21. Generally, this term, being subject to one another, is a military word. In the Greek of that day and age, it meant that you rank yourself underneath someone else. You even arrange yourself underneath someone else. So, therefore, it's not about me and a relationship. Again, verse 21 is coming before all the different relationships that we have. Before that happens, verse 21 is saying, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Therefore, it's not about me entering into a relationship, whether it's marriage or with children or a friendship. It's not about me and others serving me. It's not about you primarily and the other relationship that you have and whatever category that person is in serving you. My perspective and your perspective, in other words, in a relationship is not primarily what can I get out of it. What can I get out of it? We enter into marriage. We enter into friendships. We enter into friendships at church. We come to church. We do many things in life with what can I get out of it? What's in it for me? But rather, Ephesians 5.21 says, arranging yourself to others that you will be in some way ranked underneath them. That is, my goal should not be to place others under me, below me, or behind me. Let's say that I had all of you over at my house for dinner tonight. I'm not saying come over to dinner tonight. But let's say we had you over. And after we eat, let's say it was spicy Indian food. And so your tummies maybe are a little, you know, interesting. And I say, you know what? Let's go out for pawn. Raise your hand if you've ever had pawn. Has anybody had pawn? What? That's right. You were in India. You did. Pawn. Didn't you love pawn? Like, uh, maybe. Yes, India, uh, Lisa's had pawn. So I, I love pawn, but I especially love when American pastors came over to India and we would take them out for pawn and they would literally freak out. They wouldn't want to eat it because it's, uh, some kind of leaf. And they put coconut in there. They put some kind of like tree bark, almost like lime. I think, is it lime? White stuff in there. It is lime. They put, and it's just a leaf, and it's just a stand on the side of a road. <laughs> at least where I was at. Most pond stands, P-A-A-N. Now, the, the thing is that some pond, you have to be careful because they'll put tobacco in them. Okay? You don't want to get those. Okay? You, you want to get the normal pond. And it's really good, really sweet, but you can't chew it. The American guys, they would eat it quickly all at once and swallow it. And that's not how you do it. You eat it slowly, nice and slow, because you want it to soothe your tummy. But when you see it, it's just like a leaf with maybe some white stuff on it and a toothpick through it. And most of the American guys would be like, no, Tom, no, no. We, we, we don't want that. That's crazy. We're going to get sick. Well, so what if I had you over and I said, let's all go out for a pond. And you guys were like, 
<laughs> tell them, you know, you used to live in India. This is in India. We're not going for pine. And I said, no, you're at my house. You're my guests. We're going to go for pine. Oh, you're never going to come back to my house again. That's not a good attitude. You know, I'm being harsh. I'm, I'm being hard. And then what? I, I'm getting bitter. So then me having you over to my house has become not about you. It's become about me. That's in essence generally what this is saying when it says be subject to one another. It's the idea that even if I invited you to my house and I wanted you to then to experience something that I liked and that I enjoyed and, and you were like, oh, man, that, that sounds awesome for you, but I'm not sure. And then I, I get mad because you don't want to do what I want you to do. If I get mad about that and upset, then I'm really not arranging myself underneath you. It's about my agenda and my likes. And so this verse is saying, having a preference is not bad, but with our preferences, at times we must what? Let them go. <laughs> with my own agendas, at times I must let it go. Say goodbye to them. Because ultimately, it's not about me. That's what really this verse is saying. Being subject to one another is the idea that I'm going to arrange myself underneath this other person's interests and their agenda. How can I serve them and not how can they serve me? And if they don't want to be served in such a way, no issue, no problem. Because at times, if we're not careful, I can even force how I want to minister or how I want to serve somebody. I can be so emphatic about that. I can sin against them because I can't serve them. They won't let me serve them the way I want to serve them. And so this verse is saying, it's not about you. And it's not even about you serving. Which is what we'll look at in a few moments. Now, specifically then, generally, it's about putting another person's interests ahead of mine. Specifically then, in verses 22 all the way to 6-9, we see these differing relationships. So for the husband, how does the husband then arrange himself? Again, when you look at verse 21, it's saying be subject to one another. It's not wives be subject to one another or wives be subject to your husbands. Being subject to one another is for the husbands and wives. In some ways, the husband submits to the wife. What? I, I think I've told you one time that the this church asked me to do a camp on submission. And they asked me to do a whole series on how wives can submit to their husbands. So I said, yes, I'll do a camp on submission. And we'll start with how the husband can submit to the wife. From Ephesians 5.21. So husbands, we, we do like, and I... Wish that there were more husbands here to hear this, but husbands need to submit to their wives in some ways. Because generally, all Christians submit to one another. It's biblical. 
there are certain ways that the husband does not submit to the wife. And we'll look at this right now. Here, in this passage specifically, how are the husbands supposed to arrange themselves underneath their wife? And sometimes I think it's just that word, uh, submission or subject yourselves to. <laughs> you don't like that word. Okay, arrange yourself underneath your your wife. There is even a type of arranging that parents do, reprioritizing even underneath their children, all in the fear of Christ or the glory of God. But here for husbands to their wives, how are they to rearrange themselves to their wife? Well, you can see that in verse 25, love your wives. In fact, in this passage, it says three times, husbands are to love, love, love. And it doesn't say three times, husbands, be the Lord, be the Lord, be the Lord. Lead, 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 be the Lord, be the Lord, be the Lord. No, it says love, love, and love. The husband, by his his nature, by who he is as a husband, is always a leader, but he's also always to be a lover. And the lover here in verse 25 is not simply that he leads out and being romantic, but he lays down his own life for his wife. He lays down his life for his wife, his hobbies, his joys, his agendas, his priorities, his desires. In all the different realms of marriage, he seeks to arrange them underneath his wife in order that she can grow in Christ to the glory of God. It's not about the husband being loved. It's about the husband loving his wife. I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think in the years of ministry, in the years of ministry that I've had, I don't think I've had one husband ever come up to me for counseling and say, Tom, I, I, I really want to love my wife better. Can you give me some counsel from the Bible on how I can love my wife better? I think what I've normally hear is, my wife did this, or my wife did this, or she doesn't do this. I don't think I've heard a husband say ever, Tom, I really desire to improve in biblically loving my wife. How can I do that? Can you pray for me on how I can love her better? But this is the way that husbands are to submit to their wives. They arrange themselves to their wives that their priorities are her welfare, spiritually, physically, holistically, emotionally. How can I see that my wife becomes a better whole rounded person. That's my job as a husband. It's not that I have my needs met. When I was before the pastor, I didn't say that I pledge my life to be loved by you. And to the day I die, I pledge to be loved by you. But rather, the wife and the husband say, before God, I promise to love you until the day that I die or you die. And this is how the husband Submits. In what way can I love my spouse, my wife, better to help her become a better follower of Jesus? Now, wives, in a similar way, 
though also in a different way, submit to their husbands by seeking to affirm their leadership, by seeking to follow his interests, his agendas, his desire. She prioritizes his will above her own, just as the church does to Jesus. That's why it says in verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. She follows his direction unless it's sin. She is his helper and seeks to fulfill his agenda and his direction. All the while with her eyes not on him as Lord, but on Christ as her Lord. I would add that even Titus 3.4, Titus 3.4 says that wives are to love their husbands. So it's not that just the husbands love the wife. The wife also likes her husband. The word in Titus 3.4 is philo, not agape. So there should also be like in a marriage. One time I heard this young lady talk about her parents and she said that her parents didn't like each other. They loved each other, but they didn't like each other. Do you know that a wife and a husband should also like each other? <laughs> and even that that's a commanded by God in Titus 3, 4. And part of this love and this like is the wife is approaching the husband in such a way that she wants to affirm him and help him with his direction and goals and agenda for their marriage and for their life. Our children. How do children submit to their parents? How, how, how are they subject to one another in regard to their parents? Well, you can see in the text, they seek to obey their mom and dad. Chapter 6, verse 2, honor your father and mother so that it will be well with you and you can live a long life. Children prioritize that their, their parents' will. As long as it's not sinful, the children prioritize what the parents want them to do based upon God's word. Parents, we also in some ways are subject to our kids in, in what way? Not in terms of that they give us uh, orders or directions that we do, but there is this arranging of our priorities at times underneath our children. What do I mean? It's not about me watching football. It, it can be more about me playing the sport that my kids want to play. It's not about me necessarily studying a, a new book that comes out on a nuance of the Greek New Testament. It may be that my kids want to play Monopoly. And so I take time to spend with them purposefully in such a way that I can even help them, especially help them, to grow in Jesus Christ. I submit it to them. I, I rearrange my life, my priorities, in such a way that I can develop a relationship with them so I can speak Christ to them. And we could go on and we could say the same thing with slaves and masters, with employees and employers. But I think in all of this that you can see that there is this death to self. 
mentality, this death to self-priority, that it's not about me and relationships, especially marriage, but even in parenting and even in friendships. And this is very similar to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is what the Bible teaches. Even the New Testament, the Gospels say of Christ, He came not to be served, but to serve. So in relationships, our perspective, whether it's marriage, friendships, parenting, whether it's the the children at home, whether it's employer or employee, it's how can I serve the other? How can I help the other? How can I assist the other? It's not about my agenda all the time and my will. It's about serving and helping and loving the other. Why did you get into a relationship if it's marriage? Why did you decide to have kids? Is it to serve and to help and to love? Now, having said all this, and basically, again, what we're saying is a relationship, whether it's marriage or friendship, does not exist for you to find fulfillment, but rather to serve and to help the other person become more like Jesus. However, this doesn't mean that you and I are are yes people. It doesn't mean that whatever somebody says, that we're like, yes, 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 yes. No, because if you look back at Ephesians 5.21, it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so first we say this prioritizing, I prioritize others above myself. But secondly, I prioritize Christ above all. I prioritize Christ above all else. It says, in the fear of Christ. A marriage that does not have the fear of Christ is not going to be that effective of a marriage in terms of eternal fruit. Very rarely, if if all... Have I heard at any kind of seminar or conference that one of the keys to effective relationships is fearing Jesus? But this is what the text says. Before it talks about how we should do our relationships, it says being subject to one another as we are being motivated by the fear of Christ. True or false? And listen very carefully. True or false? And for those of you that are not married yet, you can even think through this. True or false? Uh, false. A date night is absolutely required for a God-pleasing marriage. True or false? I love Lisa. I need to take her out more on dates. It's good to take out your wife, your fiancé, that lady that you would court for marriage, date for marriage. That's good. 
But is it absolutely required for a God-pleasing marriage? Can you have a God-pleasing marriage and not have, quote, date nights? Well, let me ask you this, a different true or false. Fearing Christ is not absolutely required for a God-pleasing marriage. Fearing Christ is not required, absolutely, for a God-fearing marriage. And what I'm getting at is that there are many practical good things that we can plan and do to help our marriages and help all of our relationships. And I think I've heard them billions of times. But I don't know, maybe I have, maybe many, maybe several decades ago, but I don't know if I've heard that a, a key for a, an effective marriage is husband, fear Christ. Wife, fear Christ. Children, if you want to have a good relationship with your parents, it's not about fearing your dad. It's about fearing Christ. I, I've heard dads say, Tom, your kids have to fear you. Get your kids to fear you. I've heard that. No, fear, they should fear Jesus Christ. They should fear Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. This is what the Spirit of God is saying in this passage. Many good ideas for marriage that we can adopt and apply. Many good ideas for uh, principles about how to be good friends. Some biblical principles about dating. Uh, One of the foundational principles, however, that is absolutely required is that you fear Christ. Do I want any young man to date my daughter that doesn't fear Christ? He should fear Christ and he should have a job. Fear Christ, have a job. Then we can talk. Otherwise, you're not dating my daughter. Do you fear Christ? Do you have a job? The the text is pretty clear. And submitting to one another, rearranging ourselves, prioritizing somebody else and uh, above me, but I always do that with the fear of Christ. That is, I'm not impressed or intimidated by the other person. I'm impressed and intimidated by Christ. And so then that frees me up to, how can I minister and serve this person? We could have all kinds of good parental strategies, but if a parent is not breathing the fear of Christ, then that parenting, it, it can be suffocating. Because it can just be a bunch of legalistic principles that suppress the children and the whole home. But if there is this genuine, sincere fear of Christ, then that breathes in life. So what is this fear of Christ? Well, it's not being terrorized. It's not, ah, 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 ah where you're afraid to move if you do anything because you're afraid that Christ is going to crush you. No, that's not the fear of Christ. What is this fear of Christ? Well, just briefly, let me give 
three possible ideas. Briefly, and it's at least this. First, fearing Christ means that from your perspective, it's it's all about Christ. So your life is about revolving around Christ. Your marriage is about revolving around Christ. If your child, your life and your family and your hobbies, all that is to revolve around Christ. If you are an employer or an employee, it's about how can I please Christ. It's all about Christ. And the idea of Christ in the New Testament is the anointed one, the Messiah, that not promised one that was the prophet, the priest, and the king. It's it's Jesus, Yeshua Mashiach, Yeshua HaMashiach, that is the prophet, the priest, and the king, not me. So any relationship I'm in, I, I don't go to Lisa and say, hey, babe, I am your prophet, I'm your priest, I'm your king. You know it's true. No. It's not the wife, it's not the kids, it's not me. As a pastor, definitely I'm not the prophet, the priest, and the king. That's Jesus. So it's all about Jesus, the Messiah, the one that is the prophet, the priest, the king. It's about him. So in my different relationships, my perspective and my goal is not how can you serve me, but how does Christ want me to serve you? I have a general, a commander, Jesus, Yeshua. And this really guards me from from absolute service. And what I mean by absolute service is that I absolutely serve one person only, Jesus Christ. I don't absolutely serve anybody else, because there may be some things that somebody may ask me to do, that I I say no. Lisa is not my absolute servant. (laughs) Nobody is my absolute servant. Not one person. We all absolutely serve primarily Jesus Christ. And this will even guard us from a type of codependency. I'm not codependent on anybody because primarily... When I'm seeking to minister and to serve, it's not that I'm impressed or intimidated by you or I have just this incredible absolute pity for you because you're so terrible a person and you need me. But rather it's because my prophet, my priest, my king, the Lord Jesus Christ calls me to lay down my life. It's because of him. There is this awe and adoration I have to him. And out of that, that type of of fear, I seek to serve him. It's primarily about Christ. If you're looking for an acronym, maybe you can come up with your own acronym and, and share it with me later. An acronym out of fear based upon F E A R. So mine is Frank Estimation about the Redeemer. Frank estimation about the Redeemer. My frank estimation about the Redeemer is that I, I'm not the prophet, priest, and king. I am not, will never be. That's only Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so then my whole life is oriented, should be oriented, around him and toward him. He is awesome, I am not. 
It's primarily about Christ. This fear is that he is awesome. And when I have a frank estimation about who he is, he is infinitely awesome. I am not. I give him the glory. It's about him and all that I do. It's not about me. It's not about somebody loving me. It's about me serving that person because I love Christ. Number two, fear in Christ includes realizing you are not sufficient. You're not sufficient. It is interesting to me, and I think it should be instructive, that verse 21 says, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, after it talks about fearing Christ, then it gives all the different responsibilities for wives, husbands, children, and parents, and employees, and employers. And I think what the Spirit is seeking to get people to understand is that we should have a fear, not a fear of, ah, oh, oh, you know, I'm terrorized by Christ, and I can never do this, period. But Jesus is Lord, and on my own, in my own strength, standing on my own two feet, I can't do what is required of me. And that's why even submitting to one another is associated closely with being filled with the Spirit of God. I need the Spirit of God in my life and to walk in the Spirit. John talked about this in his sermon this morning. And I need to have the fruit of the Spirit so that I can lovingly, joyfully, with peace, submit to others as I'm looking at Jesus and I'm fearing Christ. Because I know that I can't do it myself. I need Christ. John 15, 5. Without him, I can do nothing. And so there's that type of fear of, I, I can't do it. Have you ever stood on, on a dock? I, I guess I'm, I'm a coward. I can go to Bonnie Lake and it can be maybe two feet above the water. And I'm on a dock. And I'm at the edge and I'm like, and my kids are already in the water, and they're playing, and they're, Dad, Dad, get in, get in, get in. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not scared of alligators. I'm not scared of stumps. I'm scared the water's going to be cold. <laughs> I know it. It's cold water. This is Washington. You guys grew up here. I grew up in Florida. It's cold. Jump. And I can just be on, and on this dock and... You know, maybe, I don't know, it feels like five minutes, it goes by, I'm still not getting it. you got to jump in. I'm not terrorized by it, but there is this like, can I take it, can I do it? And I think there should be this fear of these things, these responsibilities, I can't do it outside of Christ. I need him with me. I need his power, his strength, his wisdom, his presence. Matthew 28 19 through 20, going therefore, making disciples, make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them. And then it ends, that passage does with, and behold, I'm with you always. And so even Jesus is saying, here's what I want you to do. You can't do it without me. And so I'll be with you always. And I think, in part, that's this idea of fear of Christ, that I need to have this perspective that I need Christ with me 
Always, all the time. Without him, I can do nothing. And it's not the one that I fear I, I run from. The one that I fear I run to. And that's Jesus. And you have this in many different Psalms. Again, one of my favorite, Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So, Psalm 34, 8 just says, taste the Lord. Taste Yahweh. He's really good. Take refuge in him. Take refuge in the Lord and the Messiah. And then verse 9 says, fear the Lord. Now, it seems kind of contradictory. Take refuge in the one that you fear. Well, he's awesome, but I, I adore him. Oh, for the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The one that we fear should be the one that we take refuge in because we know that he is awesome. And without him, without his power, his wisdom, his blessing, his love, his presence, his great, his might... It's peace. We can do nothing. Psalm 2, verse 12 says, Kiss the son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. And the whole psalm is about basically Jesus being the king of kings. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But then Psalm 2 ends with, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The fear of Christ is not a bad thing. The fear of Christ is a wonderful thing. And it's not this fear that you might be terrorized of a creature at night jumping out of the closet and grabbing you. But rather, it's this fear that he is not just Savior, he's King. He's not just the Lamb, he's the Lion. He's not just the justifier, he's also the judge. And so, third, this fear in Christ involves acting like I am accountable to the Christ. Fear in Christ involves acting like I am accountable to Christ. I represent Christ, but I am accountable to the one I represent. I, I do represent Christ, so do you if you're in Christ. But you and I are accountable to the one that we represent. To be that best image by his grace that we can be. But Jesus is the one that is the anointed one, that promised one. He is the priest. He is the prophet. But he's also the king. And so I don't shuck or shrink from my responsibilities as a husband or as a father or as a friend. I'm going to be accountable to God. I'm going to be accountable to Christ. It says in Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Yes, we have Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's true. My sin's already been judged on the cross. I'm not going to be judged for my sin. I'm not going to go to purgatory. 
But the Bible does talk about in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, it does talk about that there will be a type of reward that we can receive in heaven from Christ based upon our faithfulness. Romans 14, verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? I didn't plan this to coincide with the sermon on Luke. For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. There is some way that all of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ not to be judged for our sin. That's taken care of. But there is some way that I will give an account which will factor in with my reward. And if you don't like how I'm stating that about give an account, well, think about it this way. Do we want to please or displease the Lord Jesus, our Savior and our King? We want to please him. I want to hear hear him say, well done. Well done, Tom. Well done. But scripture does seem to indicate that in some way I'm going to be accountable. Did I truly love my wife? That I laid down my life for my wife? That I disciple my kids? That I love the flock? Did I? And so there is this accountability then that each one of us has with Christ that motivates me to do well. And this is part of this fear of Christ. So why should Lisa love me when I'm unloving? Has there been periods or days or months or weeks of years of my life when I'm unloving? Perhaps there could be a husband or a wife when there goes by days, months, years, months when when they're not loving. What does the other spouse do? They seek to always be faithful and always be loving and always be kind, ultimately because all of us are accountable to who? To Christ. All of us will give an account to Christ. So it's not though a spouse not loving the other spouse, children not obeying their parents, parents not faithfully, tenderly, with faithfulness, correcting their children. Though all of that is important, we need to do our responsibilities faithfully. Ultimately, it's I'm not focused on how does this other person love me. And if they don't love me, then I'm going to shirk my responsibilities. No, I'm going to love them because I answer to who? To Jesus Christ. I'm going to do my duty because of him. I'm going to do what God wants me to do because I'm going to look at Jesus face to face. That's true. All of us. Every person in here, we will stand and look at that very face of Christ. Every single one of us. I want to look at his face and though not perfect, I was faithful. I tried. I was faithful. Not not perfect, Lord. But I kept pressing forward. 
The greatest problem, therefore, in other words, that you and I have in our relationships, really, though I know in some relationships the other person can be terrible and they can be a great problem, but the greatest problem that I have is me. You and I can never, ever control another person and make them absolutely do everything that we want or make them do everything that we think God wants them to do. We can't do that. But one thing I can do is that I can fear Christ. And out of that, I can seek to love them. So then the third priority then becomes, how do we though grow in our fear of Christ? Third, this involves prioritizing your life around Christ. And this point will be very brief. Prioritizing your own life around Christ. How do we grow in fearing Christ? There is no magical way. There's no shortcut. You can read 2,000 books on fearing Christ. It may or may not help you. The only surefire way to grow in Christ is you read your Bible attentively. You read your Bible attentively. And then when you're done reading it, you pray to Jesus. You pray to the Lord. And you talk to the Lord. And you ask him, Lord, help me to see and to understand how great and awesome you are, Lord. You read the Bible, you pray, you confess your sin, and then you thank him. So you read your Bible, especially find passages that talk about Jesus, you know, the the New Testament. Read the Old Testament, read Psalms, yes. Be sure that you're reading in the New Testament. Pray to the Lord. Spend time with him. On your knees, communicating with God. Confessing your sin, thanking him for his forgiveness. And if you do that, though not perfectly, but consistently, you will grow in the fear of Christ. Let me close with this. And I I hope it's helpful in terms of the, the need to lovingly serve others by the fear of Christ. And I think this can factor in. So last night, or in the later afternoon, Lisa and Noriko were working on Dad's memorial service. When Lisa got a phone call from her friend, Stephanie Wilcott. You guys, some of you are familiar with Stephanie Wilcott. She's been here several times. Lisa's known her longer than she's known me. Stephanie's father passed away four or five years ago. Well, yesterday, Stephanie Wilcott called Lisa as Lisa was working on the memorial for her father, and Stephanie Wilcott found her mother dead in bed with blood coming from her nose. Apparently, she had a brain aneurysm. You know, it's very hard, very sad, and you know, I heard Stephanie, I hadn't really heard her ball. She was bawling on the phone. I understand. And I'm saying this not to elicit emotion, but to say what? 
Time is brief. Time is brief. Young people, time is brief. We don't know how much longer that we have or the other person has on this planet and we can argue and complain and gripe with one another. It's nonsense. It's not that we can't disagree and work some things out. We should disagree in some things and we should work them out. But it should always be with love and it should be with tenderness and always in this fear of Christ that I'm going to meet Christ and I want to have done a good job at loving my wife and loving my family and loving everyone and, and serving them. How much time do we have before he returns? Could be today. How much time do we have before we see him because we pass away? Who knows? I was coming home from the airport, got hit by a drunk driver. (laughs) Who knows? God knows. But until that time, let's use this fear of Christ that, yes, I love him, but he's also my Lord. And of all the people that I want to please, I want to please him the most. Because soon I'm going to be with him face to face. Submitting to one another, therefore, out of the fear of Christ. And that is spiritual warfare. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this reminder. May we have this precious fear of Christ that you are the lamb, but you're the lion. You're the justifier and the judge. You're the Savior and the King. You're the prophet and the priest. So, Lord, may we have a true awe and adoration of you that will motivate us, Lord, to not be placing ourselves first, but rather to be like you that we came to serve. You came to serve. May we seek to be like you, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for placing ourselves first. May we place you first and then seek to help others become more like Christ. We give you praise. We give you glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen.